Welcome to Great Minds. And our guest today is uh, one of the most accomplished, interesting people that I know who we've come across the last few years. He's got a tremendous background in finance. We first met during your very successful tenure at SNAP, Imran. And uh, today we're excited to have you here to talk about Verishop, which is just going like gangbusters. Our guest today, founder and CEO of Verishop, Imran Khan. Welcome, Imran. Thank you. Thanks, Matt. I appreciate you having me. Well, it's great to see you again and a very interesting uh, area here we're going to dive into. And I think I'm going to learn a lot uh, along the way. So, Imran, I want to go back. I know that the state of Colorado has played an outsized role in your life. I'd love to talk about how you got to Colorado uh, and uh, thoughts on that part of your life, which really was your first journey over here to America. Yes. So, uh, as you know, I grew up in Bangladesh and uh, my father came to the U.S. Uh, for off- office, uh, some business reasons in 1990. And he was really impressed by America. And he always encouraged me to go come to the U.S. for study. And so when I was finishing up my high school, um, with the encouragement of my parents, I decided to come to the U.S. to study. And, you know, I was at the fence at the beginning. So by the time I made up my mind, you know, I had to move very quickly. So I didn't have, I've never been to the U.S. um, And I, only thing I knew about U.S. by reading books or watching TV shows. Uh, So I went to a newsstand and picked up U.S. News and Magazine. And they have the list of all the colleges and universities. And I literally went through it. And then, and I told that to Jerry Young one day, I went to an internet cafe. We didn't have computer in our house, uh, internet cafe and logged in and did with Yahoo and search for all sorts of different places and found University of Denver. And I applied and Colorado looked like a very beautiful place. And so applied and that's how I end up at, uh, in Colorado and going to school at University of Denver. Great. I was lucky to spend a summer there when I was 15 different part of the state in Boulder, Colorado, at the University of Colorado. The air sure smells clean out there. Very clean, very, very, very clean and, 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 and a great place. Really is. And then you began, uh, you stayed in Denver and started at Wild Blue. So that was my internship. So um, when I was in college, you know, um, in starting junior year, I started doing internship and, uh, and Denver, it was, Colorado was a big hub for satellite uh, industry uh, and uh, going back to Charlie Argon and, and, and all the things that they don't. And Wild Blue was a satellite company um, that I got introduced to by, by my economics professor. And they were looking for an internship. And I worked at Wild Blue uh, as an intern, uh, you know, in working for their CFO. Great. And you seem to lean in towards the finance side of things early on. Where did that come from? I, you know, I studied economics and while studying economics, I realized that uh, I really like my major, but I don't like the academic part of it. I more like the business part of it. Uh, So one of the interesting thing about University of Denver was they offered dual degree. So as part of the economics, I could take some finance classes. So I started taking finance classes and I really, really started enjoying 
the finance classes and really stock market uh, part of it, you know. And, and remember, um, I was junior in 1999. Uh, that was like the first uh, part of that, what we call it Robin Hood era, right? Everybody was investing in stock market. Stock market was booming, you know, a lot of the new kind of tech companies. So, so really, really got interested in investing and finance and things like that uh, through that finance class. So I ended up doing dual degree in economics and finance. And when I graduated, I wanted to go to Wall Street because, you know, it's, it's so, I was, found it so fascinating how the market moves and how it's connected to the, you know, so many different parts of our life that a lot of times we don't appreciate it. And that obviously we have seen how connected finances in everyone's life if last two decades. Absolutely. And, and, you know, when we first met, when you were on stage keynoting for us at Advertising Week, must be what, seven, eight years ago by now. Yeah, probably like first time I did was in 2015. So seven years ago. Seven years ago. So your background is unusual for someone who ends up as a chief strategy officer in that case of, you know, one of the big, biggest players out of Silicon Valley. I would think as CEO now for Verishop, that grounding you have and all those years you spent in finance, that's got to help you quite a bit. You're not relying on others for good advice. You're able to give your own good advice when it gets down to the real blood and guts matters of the economics of Verishop. Yeah, I think it's important, you know, uh, having strong finance is uh, background is a benefit, but also could be a curse. I always say people's biggest strength is also their biggest weakness. Uh, I think, you know, one of the interesting, most important thing that I always said that as a CEO, you know, you're one of your, there's not a lot of big difference between a CEO or a big money manager who manage money. If you think about it, CEO has uh, lots of resources, right? So you have people who are working on engineering, people who are working on sales and marketing, people who are working on design, and you have a lot of capital, or sometimes a lot, sometimes less, you have capital that you have to deploy. So as a CEO, one of the things you always do is you make decision where we, you will allocate your resources and where you will get the most return. So the prioritization of your resources and allocating the resources. Great CEOs are great capital allocator. Bad CEOs try to do everything, doesn't do anything well. If you look at a money manager, are the same thing. You know, the best money managers are concentrated investors who make concentrated bet on thesis, you know, so again, you're allocating resources. In that case, you're allocating money. So, so I think, you know, the finance background definitely taught me how to prioritize things. Uh, uh, and, uh, and then, but, but it, I learned a lot of the part of operating the business. You know, obviously I learned, you know, as a banker focusing in technology sector and as an operator at Snap running the all, you know, revenue partnership, M&A, Corp Dev, all sorts of stuff that I've done. Uh, but you know everything is different. What I do today is very different than Snapchat, and uh, so really understanding the problem that we're trying to solve and really stay focused on that makes a big difference. I want to stay here for a second, and I want to share a theory that I've had and see if you agree or disagree. I've always felt that 
the companies that are engineering led, engineering founders, engineering led. And I'm going to put financial grounding in the same category for purposes of our conversation now. I've always felt that those companies and those leaders, if you will, were uncomfortable on the sales and marketing side, and that it really took them a while to come around to that um, and be more comfortable with it. Do you think there's anything to that theory? I think people always play their strength, right? So, you know, I think I always say that if you look at the consumer companies, you know, a lot of the consumer companies are led by product or design founders, you know, because you're trying to reach a they're very comfortable reaching a very large audience because they build a great product. If you look at a lot of software companies actually run by sales and marketing leaders, right? If you look at the CEOs of a lot of software companies, their background in sales and marketing. You know, it's really interesting. A lot of the e-commerce companies, you know, actually, if you look at their CEOs, actually come from finance and consulting. And the reason is e-commerce is so darn hard, right? Because you have to be understand every cost items, you know, you not only have to innovate, but you also have to understand cost and return of that innovation because consumers are ruthless, right? They want to have the best product at the lowest price with the best customer experience, you know? And when you're trying to provide the best product with the lowest price, with the guest best customer experience, it's very, very expensive. It's incredibly expensive. And so you really have to make sure that you are investing very prudently because ultimately, you know, the, you know, for a consumer who is watching a content, cost of swiping up that content is almost zero, right? There's a swiping cost. But when a consumer spend money on a platform, at that point, they're giving you their money. At that point, they're giving you their trust. And if you don't deliver on that trust, they will be really, really upset. And they will not going to give you a second chance. And so, so I think the, in the e-commerce space, you know, understanding that and really build a business to run a better operation is super, super important, you know, because the gimmicky things is, I would say gimmick, the cool, coolness can take you so long, but if you deliver on the core principle that I gave you money and I need to deliver the service, if you fail on that, they, they will not going to forgive you. And that's why Amazon won, right? So, and, and if you look at all the great e-commerce businesses, whether it's Mercado Libre or Alibaba and JD.com in China or Zalando in Europe, they all have been, at the end, you know, all these cool things is great, but you, somebody's buying something and you need to deliver on that promise. So let's go back a little bit. Let's dial the clock back. You had some really successful tenures with some marquee companies, JP Morgan, Credit Suisse. And early on, you really established yourself as an analyst. You became a star at a very young age, recognized in institutional investors' annual rankings. You were a very young guy. What was it that drove you to such a level of performance? Self-motivated? Um, I don't think it was money. You've got some fire in there. Let's talk about where that came from and what it was like to have such success at such a young age. So first of all, I think it's really, really important to recognize that that I was lucky, right? Uh, 
And, you know, I always said people, and I don't think people, you know, so many of people, they get so overconfident about their ability and, and, and they don't recognize that luck plays a very important role, right? But, the, the, you know, the fact that I was born, I was lucky, right? You know, uh, and, uh, and, and the fact that I had the opportunity to come to this country was a, a lot of luck. And, but if you take to the next step is that, you know, I was, I becoming, I, like leading the internet coverage after a bubble burst, right? So if you look at late 90s, there are a lot of famous internet analysts. You know, I don't want to sell their names, but you know their names. They're very, very famous. But then the 2001 happened and it really washed out those analysts, right? Because they completely, they were right over 20 years, but they were incredibly wrong for two, three years period. You know, and when the stock market goes down 75% and a lot of those companies that you recommend completely goes out of business, you know, it ruined your career, right? And, 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 and so, so the market was looking for new generation of research analyst. And I was in a right place at the right time, right? I was young, but market was looking for new generation analysts, right? Who are not tainted by banking support and touting stocks because their firm got paid a lot of money. So that was, you know, pure luck, right? And, um, and then I think the, what really helped was, you know, uh, you know, really working really hard to really understand those businesses, right? So when I got the opportunity, you know, it's like playing football. When you get the ball, you know, you got to run with it, you know? And, uh, and so, so when I got the chance, I ran with it, right? So I, you know, went and met all these companies. I have done, you know, most thorough research because I think the value of research went up significantly after for 2001, people really wanted to understand fundamental research of these companies. And that was really helpful even today because it, when, not, when everything goes up, it's very easy to be an analyst. It's very easy to be, do anything. Everything's going up. But when not everything doesn't go up, you really have to understand why something goes up and why something doesn't go up. And you really have to really have to understand the fundamentals of the business. And I really, really took a lot of time to understanding those businesses really deep into what makes a successful organization, not only a successful product. Um, and then, you know, obviously at that time, I also took a global view you know, and start going to China in 2004 when it was not super popular to go to China and meeting companies like Alibaba when they were doing only $90 million revenue, you know, uh, or, or meeting, you know, Mercado Libre, which uh, when I met them, they were doing like $20 million revenue, uh, you know, so, so had the opportunity to meet some of these companies at super early and, and, and get to know their founders and learned a lot from them that paid dividends throughout my career. So let's talk about China. You went exactly where I wanted to go next. Um, you saw it before anybody else. What was it that you saw? I would say that I was the only person, like if you look at Chase Coleman, who runs Tiger Global, he was going to China since 2002. So, but I was one of the early ones, you know? So, uh, so uh, you know, I think what I saw was really, you know, I think if you look at, whole breakdown, what makes a successful internet business, right? What internet fundamentally did, it, it empowers the long tail, you know, 
And if you look at the world, you know, world goes through, went through fragmentation, consolidation, and then internet helping this, again, helping empowering this fragmented player, right? So if you look at 200, like not 200, we go back 50, 70, 80 years ago, right? Every local town had a local newspaper, you know, maybe multiple local newspaper. Every local town had multiple local stores. And then some big business people like Sam Walton in the retail space and, and, the, and, the, and, the, and the guys like Horst in the media space, they're like, well, let's consolidate all this. We can cut costs and build up big media companies and big retail companies. And that really happened in the 60s and 70s you know, and 80s. And then came along internet and that really empowers these small players. Like people like Justin Bieber trying to become a famous singer because of YouTube, right? And, and, and that fragmentation happens. So once, once you understand that, that, so what's the key component to build a big successful business? You need large audience, a lot of people, and you need a lot of people also have disposable income that they spend money, you know? So if in the US, you had 300 million people, it was a sizable country with very big disposable income. If you look at China, it, they had four times bigger audience while the disposable income was lower, but it was growing at a rapid pace. And, and you take that with incredibly, incredibly smart, talented engineers and highly, highly motivated young people who work like day and night and very mission driven. Uh, you know, it, it was pretty you know, clear that you know, uh, China will become a very strong uh, land for technology innovation. And that really led me going to China in 2004. And you then played a pretty big role in the whole rollout of Alibaba. Yeah, I think, you know, um, you know Alibaba was, was, was a really interesting company because they, you know, they're probably one of the early company in China who had global ambition, although it kind of rolled back with the recent uh, what's going on there. But uh, and so they really was engaged with the global investor community very early on. And in 2004, Jack uh, Jerry Young made an investment uh, in Alibaba, and uh, and that obviously became also very important because I was covering Yahoo. Uh, so that's how really the relationships start developing. And then uh, and then you know in 2010 when they became very active in the corporate finance activities, you know uh, I had the opportunity to work with all their finance activities between 2010 and 2014. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Jerry. I think so highly of him and he doesn't get talked about enough. But Jerry, you know, was there were so many companies and you remember all of them who were, you know, big brands in the earliest days of the Internet, many of whom disappeared. Brands like Alta Vista and Lycos and so many others. Disney's Go debacle. But Jerry and David, that team that founded Yahoo, they did a lot of things right. And I know the brands changed hands a number of times. We've ridden that wave with them. We like the new leadership team at Yahoo very much, but just bought it from Verizon Media. Um, but Jerry Yang really deserves a lot more credit, I think, often than he's given. Yeah, look, he, he's the pioneer of uh, internet, right? Very, you know. Uh, as I said, when I was in Bangladesh and I was researching school, looking at the U.S. news, I was at the Internet Cafe using Yahoo search engine, right? And 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 I think you know, technology is a brutal space, right? You know, you cannot never take your leadership as granted, 
it's high, it's changing all the time, it's evolving all the time. And, um, and anytime you believe that somebody has cornered the market, you know, somebody else will come disruptive. And, uh, but, you know, the, if you look at the early days of internet, Jerry set the foundation and, 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 you know, that it was inspiration for next generation of internet entrepreneurs who came and built different and better companies and, and, and today. So, so I think, you know, Jerry is definitely one of the early pioneer of what he has done. And, and look, the, the, the investment that in Alibaba, it's, I forgot how much it generated, probably 40, $50 billion for Yahoo. So it's, it's, it's an incredibly successful investment. One of the best investments have been made in tech. And then at some point your gears shift and you end up in a different part of our business where we first came together working at Snap. Yeah, so in 2014, I remember a pretty, um, I think Alibaba went public on September 19th of 2014. Uh, and, and that was, I was working on that project for almost 18 months. And, uh, and it was pretty exhausting because I was going back and forth between Hong Kong and the US. And so my goal was that, okay, now, and at that point it was the largest IPO in the history, $25 billion IPO. Even today, the largest IPO in, in the US. Um, and uh, the only company that's bigger IPO was Armaco in Saudi Arabia. And so I was like, you know what? I'm gonna take some time off and relax. Uh, but then I got this email um, about Snapchat and, um, and Evan wanted to meet. And so I went and met him in Los Angeles. I, I think I got the email on September 29th. And then I met him sometimes in early October. And, and it was, I think Evan is such an incredibly talented human being. And, and the way he think about the world is so refreshing and so different. And, you know, I remember after the meeting, I called my wife and we were living in New York and told her that we might have to move to LA because I had a great meeting with him and I think he wants to hire me. And I think if he hire, wants to hire me, I might, I probably will join. And, uh, and, um, yeah, so, so we met him and it was really interesting. Snap had probably around 75 people or so. Uh, you know, they didn't have an ad business at that time. And, but the pro, and it was only messaging app, Discover or any of those product wasn't there. Uh, but Evan's vision was pretty clear, like what he wanted to build and, and be part of that and helping him build the business side of it was super interesting. And, and that really led to join. And over the next years that followed, you played a role in some pretty dramatic growth at that company. Yeah, we've been lucky. And look, I think, um, uh, you know, in January uh, 2015, we had zero revenue. By the time I left in, you know, in the end of 2018, you know, our run rate revenue was 1.6 billion. So we, from, we went from zero to 1.6 billion in four years. We went from 70 million um, users to close to 300 million users. We went from 75 people to, you know, 3,000 people. Uh, we went going to a private company running on QuickBook to a public company with, uh, you know, uh, best-in-class accounting system. So it, it was, an, you know, we went from one office in Venice, in a, actually we had two buildings, to, you know, a big campus in Santa Monica to office in 14 different countries. So, yeah, it was quite a, you know, I think it was a, quite a crash course. Let's focus in on one of the more challenging issues the industry has been wrestling with, and that's the whole area of data and privacy. 
my observation of the tenure that you had at SNAP and has continued afterwards is that the company really paid attention to those issues. I don't recall reading of a problem that SNAP has had along the lines of some of the other big players out of Silicon Valley who have had enormous problems. Was that all by design, Imran? Were you lucky? Um, how has SNAP managed to navigate that so well? And that started really under your tenure. Yeah, so first of all, uh, I just executed Evan's vision, you know, and this is why Evan is such an exceptional founder in a, in a way, visionary seeing where the world is going, right? And uh, so from very early on, he was really focused on, you know, building a platform, you know, that is, you know, counter to the what Facebook was teaching to the world, you know? And then this is why I think this is what the technology is so powerful because when you build a business, a lot of times you end up creating unintended consequences, you know? And, and uh, you know, and I'm giving Facebook the benefit of doubt here, you know, they built a lot of unintended consequences, you know? And, and, and those unintended consequences, you know, I, nobody saw that coming in 2014, you know, and the, some of the problems that coming today, you know, but Evan, you know, is the only person in the world that I met actually identified those problems. And, and, and so, as you know, you are very vocal about privacy, you know, is very vocal about content integrity, you know, uh, only person in 2014, nobody was talking about it. And to be honest with you, in 2015, 2016, and even in 2017, the constant questions that I would get from investors, why can't you be like Facebook? <laughs> that was the single most common question. Why can't you be like Facebook? Why don't you have, why do you care so much about privacy? Why do you know, let everybody comment? So why don't you let everybody create content? You know, every question was, why can't that? be like Facebook. And we went through, you know, I, I don't know if people remember in 2018, we went through some challenging time. And, and the whole question was, you know, you guys are terrible. You're not trying to be like Facebook. You're trying to be like different. So it was not an easy journey, but, you know, I think I, I give Evan the credit and I learned it from him. And I actually learned from Alibaba guys, you know, Jack and Joe that, you know, what a great founder, they stick to, I think, it's a really important thing that what makes a great founder, in my opinion, and hopefully I'm, I'm going to show that at, at Snap, at, at Vershop, is that a great founder knows when to stick with his or her conviction and when to pull back. You know, uh, and, 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 and then I think, you know, Evan had the conviction and he rallied the company, the conviction, and I give, and obviously I bought into his vision. And, but, you know, look, I, you got to give, you know, who saw that first in 2014, you know, during my first meeting, he was the first person who was talking about those things. Then I never heard anybody even speaking about it. Okay, but the takeaway I think is, you know, you talked about the growth in revenue from zero to 1.6 billion. I imagine that number is much higher today. Uh, and that you can prioritize privacy and run a good business if you want to. Yeah, I think it's always important to go do, and I think this is something, you know, what we're trying to do, Varishop, is do right for your stakeholders. Every business has multiple stakeholders. And I think it's really important to understand that who are your stakeholders and are you doing right by each of them? 
and 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 when you build a platform where you support all of your stakeholders then you build a platform that's very vibrant and ultimately drive a lot of growth yeah no so true and so well said imran so you just gave us a great segue we talked about one founder in evan let's talk about another founder in you and i love what you're doing there with Verishop, enabling consumers to discover something different. Let's talk about the idea where it came from and uh, how far along you are, which I think is much further certainly than I thought. And it's really, I think, an impressive story where you are already, but more importantly, we want to touch on where you're going. Yeah, I think, um, you know, going back, right, what internet ultimately does is create fragmentation, you know, and create many creators, you know. So at first, you know, the fragmentation was the old business, big businesses, they are going internet and creating more channels. But then Web 2.0, where the users became creators, you know, when they became create content and things like that, it created a completely new layer of fragmentation, you know. And, uh, and you saw that every time a creator grew fragmented, you know, a new platform was needed. So what do I mean by that? You know, Twitter gave voice to uh, creators who like to create strong opinions, you know, people with strong opinions. If you think about it, TikTok at a core is a platform that give voice to people who create short form video and they created tools for them. Uh, if you look at Spotify, you know, they started as a music focusing on the big music, but as the podcast and all these things start evolving, really becoming a platform for podcasts and, 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 and giving voice to people like you who are creating great content. And so one of the things that I observed is that uh, the next kind of creator and the fragmentation is happening into the commerce space. You know, when you think about creators, you know, our current conception is it's only people who are creating digital content. But somebody who is building an incredible product is also a creator. They're creating a product, you know, they're creating a product. An artist is a creator, but somebody who's building a beautiful, you know, home decor product or somebody who's creating a beautiful fashion clothing or somebody who's creating a beautiful, like amazing, you know, skincare product is also a creator, you know. And what I was realizing that there was no platform is supporting those creators, you know. And when I left Snap, I wanted to do three things. I wanted to build a business that helps a lot of people. Number two, work on a business that I can work for a long period of time. And third, work with some really smart group of people. And, and I looked at it and I said, this could be an interesting way to build a platform to support those independent brand creators, independent and emerging creators. And, and, and because these guys were, and girls were getting lost on advertising because between Look at them, even the large advertisers cannot figure out iOS 14 and social media and all sorts of, how does a small brand creators who has five people, 10 people, 15 people figure that out, right? You know, you know uh, the second thing I realized, so, so, so we wanted to build a platform that all those independent and emerging brand brands can come to our platform and connect with their consumers. Consumers can come also find those brands. 91% of US shoppers are looking for independent and emerging brands. So if we can create a platform where these brand creators can come tell their brand stories and sell on a platform and consumers can come and buy those knowing that they're vetted and they're gonna get consistent shopping experience because Varishop will stand by consistent shopping experience. 
right? And all every, everything you do at Wireshop is very, very consistent. Then it will reduce friction and will benefit both consumers. They're going to find there's 91% of your shoppers who are looking for a new product. And it will also help the brands who wants to connect with the new kind of new consumer. So that really led to creation of Wireshop. You know, um, we now have over 2,000 independent merchants on our platform, over 350,000 SKUs on the platform, over $700 million worth of product listed on Wireshop. Uh, and you know, over a million shoppers are shopping on a platform on a monthly basis you know, in two and a half years. Um, but what's the most fascinating thing that we are finding is that because we are a platform for those independent emerging brands, you know, obviously we are helping them to tell their story and help them sell more on Barishop, but there's also opportunities to make them a better creator. And how do you do that? By, by reducing you know, their manufacturing cost, by providing them lending, by helping them with uh, you know, their shipping infrastructure, by helping them with all the softwares they need. You know, by doing so, these small businesses, you are helping them be more efficient, more cost-effective, and ultimately that helps them to serve their, their fans better, and that creates this healthy ecosystem. So what we're really building is this you know, a true platform you know, for these independent brands and creators. You know? You know, so if you look at TikTok, they connect the, uh, uh, the short-form video creators with their fans, but they also create tools so these creators can make money, build better content. We're not different, but we're focused on the physical product world. You know, we are connecting them with the consumers so that they can sell more, but we're also building software and solutions and tools so that they can build better product at a better price and serve their customers better. And as you're offering this sort of incredible suite of tools for the creators, are they embracing it? They are. You know, I think if you look at our merchant retention rate, you know, and these are small businesses, right? You know, remember a large chunk of small businesses, unfortunately, go out of the business. But our merchant retention rate is 99.7% per month. You know, so very, very healthy. One of the things that I'm really, really proud of, you know, you know, going back to the point that you build a business where every stakeholder is happy. So if you look at our consumer, our net promoter score on the consumer side is 70. You know, our net promoter score is better than mature businesses like, you know, Amazon, eBay, Etsy, Farfetch, any of those, at least the third party data I saw. And if you look at our merchant retention rate is 99.7%, you know? So, so we really build a platform where these merchants want to come, you know, uh, and they're desperately looking for new platform to distribute and tell their stories. Uh, because, you know, the, the social is so crowded. It's so hard to, and so noisy. And, 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 and the people who are brand creators, they don't want to be on Amazon. Amazon is not a platform that fl- help you flourish brand. Amazon is a platform that kills brand, right? You know, because it's a search world, you know? So, so we really created a platform that really helps uh, the brands to come tell their story because at the end of the day, what is a brand? A brand is a promise, you know, and and there's no platform really can help the small businesses to tell their promise and facilitate transactions and give them tools to be more effective. And that's where shop is building. Well, and I'm not going to get the statistic exactly right, but I think somewhere around two thirds of our economy is in fact small and medium sized businesses. It is. And if you look at last two years, more than a million new e-commerce businesses were created, the small e-commerce businesses. So I think we are very early on our journey. You know, um, 
we want to be the best. You know, I was telling my team today, you know, these days, you know, I was with a, a young fella the other day and he was looking for somebody. The first thing he did is he went to Instagram and searched for that person and look him up, you know? So people go to, for people such people go to either Instagram or go to LinkedIn, you know, people like my age probably go to LinkedIn and people who are in the twenties, you know, they go to Instagram, you know, we want to be the platform for brands, right? If you're looking for independent emerging brands, you come to Veroshop and you find about their product, you find about their social content, you find about uh, their reviews, you can find all of those things. And then you know when you buy, you will get world-class consumer shopping experience because it's backed by Veroshop, right? You call Veroshop customer support. If you want to return, you contact Veroshop. You, you, your payment processing, all of those things is controlled by Veroshop. So you know, you, do, you take the risk of a small business dropping the ball here. Listen, if I can, if you give me a phone number or I can call Veroshop and get a human being on the phone, you've earned me as a customer for life. And, you know, if you go to Veroshop.com, I'm glad this is not a setup question for the audience. If you go to Veroshop on the first thing on the top right, you will see call or text us 24 7 888 364-5828. That's the first thing we're doing. That was not a setup. Uh, I find in my life, there is nothing more difficult than getting a human being on the phone uh, in, this, in this time and place and space that we're in. And I just talked to our head of customer support and she told me that, you know, don't hold me responsible, but she told me that last week we respond within 12 seconds of phone call, phone ringing. All right. That's, you're going to get my business. Well, Imran, this is such a, a joy to talk to you. And I love the narrative that we built. And you can really see how, you know, from that earliest experience that you had, um, the journey that you've taken, that key uh, period of your life when you were so involved with China and Alibaba, it really, in a sense, set you up for what you're doing right now. Uh, I don't know if it was all part of a grand master plan, but you, uh, you're going to be successful here. I have no doubt. And uh, I love what you're building at Veroshop. I appreciate that. I'm really excited because I think we're making difference of small businesses because when they do well, they hire more people. When they do well, as a consumer, you find something that's not generic. Uh, but, you know, but also the life is about building blocks, right? You, you, you know, I think the human civilization progress because we always at least try most cases, learn from our mistake and build on top of it. And, and that's what generation after generation we make progress. So I look at my career that way, right? Every, in one profession, I learn something and then go on the top of that, what can I do the next to build it? Uh, and, 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 and this is the fourth iteration in after research, then banking, then snap, and this is fourth iteration. So, so I'm having a lot of fun. Uh, we have a great group of great team, 45% of our company's engineers and product. So, uh, so I'm having a lot of fun and, and, and yeah, and thanks for having me. Loved having you. Thank you so much. So much great advertising week content, so little time. Snackable AI is now helping you navigate podcasts like this one, event sessions, and other content with chapters, topic tags, and more. Find the insights that matter to you faster than ever before. Learn more at snackable.ai.